Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hello. And Rebecca Ford. Hi. We have a plethora of award season news to get into, a real wide range of stuff, I'd say, taking us all the way up to the actual Oscars. Um, And then we're going to have another interview I did with the author of a book. What a great time for me. Um, I talked to Sam Wasson, who's the co-author of a book called Hollywood and Oral History, and it really is as massive and wide-sweeping as it sounds. So we'll hear that in the back half of the show. But we're going to start with news. Um, Rebecca, you cover the news for us that it may be not a surprising move, but surprising in its date, maybe, that um, Jimmy Kimmel is going to come back and host the Oscars for the third time, which I didn't realize how few people have done it that many times. He's really entering a rarefied club there. Yeah, he, um, as we all remember, hosted the infamous Envelope Gate year. And then the following year, he hosted again. And then there was a few years with no host. and, And now he's back. So I think it's a... It's a, I think it's a safe choice, and I think that's kind of the direction we're seeing this new leadership go is sort of uh, in a more traditional sense of what the show can be. Well, it feels very in line with the producers they've hired, right? These two guys who have a lot of live TV experience, and Jimmy Kimmel, of course, hosts a live show every day. Like, it's people who really, really know the territory. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, what I think is notable is this Academy leadership is – delivering on what they said they wanted to do. You know, when we talked to them a few months ago, they said they wanted to do everything early. They wanted to lock producers early. They wanted to lock a host early. And this is very, very early for a host announcement. So they're just doing what they said they're going to do. Richard, you've done the honors of reviewing the Oscars for us for many years. What are your, do you have any fond memories of Kimmel as a host? I think he's fine. You know, I think I don't remember specifics, but like some of his little like extended bits were, you know, which maybe he now has extra time to plan. Um, (laughs) That's true. Make them better by more planning. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I think that my biggest issue with Kimmel as a host, um, the other times he did it was that he has this kind of sneering attitude about it. Like, um, why are we watching this? Who cares? Like, and that to me is not the right tone for the Oscars. You know, I I mean, maybe because I was weaned on the sort of goofy, reverent, but also reverential sort of Billy Crystal treatment or even Whoopi Goldberg, you know, um, 
she could be a little more sardonic than than Crystal, but she still, I think, loved the evening and was happy to be there. And it was about celebration, where Kimmel is kind of Snyder, I guess, in the more sort of modern style. And um, I don't know if an award show that is trying to build back its sense of grandeur and meaning, um, if that's exactly the right route to go. The real big problem, though, is if not him, who, you know, there's a whole list of comedians, I'm sure, who were like, absolutely not, thankless job, I'm not getting canceled, you're not finding old tweets, no, 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 you know. And then other comedians who just aren't the right fit for it, you know, we just don't kind of breed that kind of comedian anymore. You know, it's the late night guys, it's a few others, and then everyone else is kind of more, quote, unquote, like alt comedy or too edgy or whatever. And so yeah, it's a tricky thing. I'm glad that they have someone shored up because again, that means they can plan. But like Kimmel to me is not the sort of exciting throwback I was hoping for. Yeah, I I tend to be a bit more optimistic with the choice. Uh, very back to basics. Very much someone we know can handle the gig. And yeah, the fact that they have gone this early with locking someone down is <laughs> enormously comforting to me. Um, because it's just felt so patchy and, you know, last minute the last few years. And even pre-slap, it, there was a sense that uh, Amy Schumer, Wanda Sykes, and Regina Hall were kind of <laughs> up against it, just given the dynamics of telecast and the fa- and the time at which they came in and the fact that they all had to kind of do their own thing. Um, it just didn't quite work. And this, to me, signals that they want to go back to what used to work. And whether that can still work remains to be seen, especially in terms of drawing enough eyeballs, but I'm just happy it's done and they can (laughs) move to the next phase because (laughs) they haven't had this much runway in a really long time. And I have to think it makes a huge difference, right? I mean, we've been calling for it on this podcast for years. So (laughs) they listen to us finally. Yes. I feel like it gives them the opportunity to also rope in other people for bits with Kimmel early because those are asks that, as we all know, from being people who book talent, it takes forever. <laughs> so, I yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I'm optimistic that this means the show can be more interesting by having this booked. And And to that point, Rebecca, you know, a lot of celebrity, I mean, Kimmel is friends with a lot of really famous people. Um, a lot of more famous people seem to really like him, you know, doing the mean tweets thing and all that on, on his show. Kimmel is a staunch defender of celebrity, you yeah. know, <laughs> uh, and has been for a long time. Um, he His kind of positioning always seems to be like, why do you care about celebrities, but also respect us? You know, like it's a, it's a, he, he walks a particular line. And I think, yeah, that is actually an asset now that you pointed out, Rebecca, that like he can bring in a lot of other people, which would help to, you know, maybe give us something like the Ellen selfie moment or whatever, or whatever the 2023, you know, version of that is. The Ellen TikTok. They all pool <laughs> their money together and buy Twitter. Right. <laughs> it does feel like this is the year to go safe. You know, they're coming off of not just like the slap debacle, but the train station Oscars, which like neither of which I like hated as much because I think any Oscars to me is good Oscars. But like yeah. to go back to what they know works. You know, someday they listen to me and hire Kiki Palmer to host the Oscars. I still think she'd be better at it than anyone out there. She is that kind of comedian you were talking about, Richard, that we don't create anymore. Just, you know, she's. Uh, very young and hasn't graduated into Billy Crystal status yet. Um, But yeah, I think just get back to basics, convince people that the Oscars are in safe hands, and then maybe get more adventurous in the years to come. 
We'll also never know, Katie, who they went to or how many people they went to, you know, before Jimmy. Sure. So maybe Kiki has already been asked and passed. We'll never know. Oh, Kiki, help us. You'd be so <laughs> good at it. So to jump back into the Oscar season itself, um, we've been talking amongst ourselves, and I think we talked about it on last week's show, about The Whale, which is the big crowd pleaser of festival season, but did not have a trailer out until today, as we record this uh, on Tuesday, Election Day. Um, they finally revealed some of Brendan Fraser's uh, really transformative performance, but not that much. David, you not were kind much. of, you were like helping us prepare for the trailer post, and then I was reading it once the trailer was out. I was like, oh, David, you assumed that there would be more of this than there actually was. <laughs> were you surprised? the movie um (laughs) in retrospect i was not surprised at all um but we are getting pretty close to release this podcast is out on the 10th which means we are less than a month away from (laughs) the movie being out in theaters the movie premiered over two months ago in venice Uh, it has been a long time and a24 has essentially gotten away with putting out very 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 little in the way of actual visual assets for this movie um, it's understandable as to why, um, having covered the movie a lot, I'm quite familiar with, you know, the carefulness and the caution with which they are approaching this campaign and the internet can be a cruel, gross place. I even winced at a few headlines and, you know, some copy that came out, came out this morning regarding the trailer, because this is a topic that people don't know how to write about. <laughs> um, and this is something that it's been a learning process for me. So all to say, there is a lot of consideration behind why they have released so little, but it starts to become more and more conspicuous, especially with a teaser like this, because, you know, there's so much in it about how great Brendan Fraser is using, you know, pull quotes from reviews, but they just still aren't letting us actually see him in any, you know, significant way. And it remains the case that this is a small movie. That's the thing I keep coming back to is it's not like this is Avatar 2 or Wakanda Forever where the hype machine around it is so huge. The Brendan Fraser comeback narrative is only going to get you so far. And at some point, they're going to need to gin up real interest in the movie itself. And they seem to be continuing to rely on, you know, tweets. (laughs) Yeah. I actually thought of Avatar 2 while I was watching this because, you know, here I am, the staunch Avatar defender. But I think that that movie in trailers feels kind of goofy. Like you watch it, you're just like, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? And then the movie itself, as Richard, you and I talked about when we went to see the original, really envelops you. And I still haven't seen The Whale, but my my understanding is that even people who are skeptical of it kind of come up being like, "Okay, yeah, they got me. And I wonder if that's part of the strategy, just just giving you as little as you need and knowing that the movie – has the goods to sell you if you actually get into the theater. Yeah, and, and to an extent, that's totally true. And But there are other elements of it that I find more, you know, more strange. Like, we still haven't seen some of the supporting casts. <laughs> like, there are yeah, no... Yeah, Samantha act- Morton's in that movie. <laughs> you Samantha be hard Morton's to know in the, the movie. Um, you finally see a little glimpse of Hong Chao, um, who is really wonderful in it. Um, Sadie Sink is the most prominent, you know, supporting player. Uh, we'd released an image of her back when we did that first look story. Um, but other than that, still not a lot. So it's, it's slim pickings. It's definitely going to be an experiment because Katie, I like your perspective on it, but I, I just, I don't know if people go to see this movie, if they haven't heard anything about it, it's so small and quiet. And obviously the Brendan narrative is out there for people like us, but I just, I think they they haven't done quite enough for this to be a sort of word of mouth phenomenon, if that's what they're hoping for. 
I've also been thinking about it in the context of the specialty box office this year and and the limits that we're seeing with it. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought a movie like Tar had a kind of genius art house campaign as far as you can take that. And what we learned, sadly, is you can't take that as far as you could even two years ago. And I just wonder how a movie as small as this without that more of the machine behind it, how far it can go. There is something also like about how withholding the trailer is, you know, where we get a quick, you know, a glimpse of Fraser, but it's not much that is playing into the sort of morbid curiosity factor Mm. where it's like a glimpse behind the curtain and then the curtain closes again. And it's like, well, if you want to see more, you have to come, you have to come down to the theater and see it. And like, I think that is a, I mean, this is just me, you know, I don't think that was the intention of the trailer makers or whatever, but like it, it does play into what I think is a major flaw in that film, which is like, you're, you're not supposed to be gawking at him in a sort of Hmm. leering way, but, and, but the movie kind of invites that, you know, and um, unfortunately, and I think that this trailer is a bit like, here's a tease of this thing you're going to behold. And if they showed more, that curiosity factor dims some. Maybe maybe there were people out there who were like, if there was a regular two and a half minute trailer with lots of scenes, they'd be like, all right, I get what that is and what he looks like in it. And, you know, I don't need to go see it. But now it's just, it's drawing them in closer. And I don't know. I just think that kind of works in, in, in bad dialogue with uh, the actual movie. Yeah, I, I try to get at this in my write-up of the trailer, which is that in the effort of being so careful, you're actually at a certain point just adding fuel to the fire of all right. of this scrutiny and already backlash around what this is going to look like and sound like and and feel like because if the movie's not <laughs> embarrassed by what it has produced, which I've spoken to the creators, they're surely not, then at some point you just have to put it forward because you're adding to that intrigue factor to such an extent that it starts to feel exactly right, like a little gawky and a little bit like you're playing into all of that scrutiny as opposed to trying to combat it. Do you not think that the festival run they've been doing adds to some of like putting it forward and being proud of it? You know, it's it's out there like winning awards at regional festivals, which we've talked about. It's it's visible to some. Is that not a viable strategy, you think? I think those are limited audiences, you know. I think in an ideal world, the movie taps into what appears to be, at least online, a broad amount of support for Brendan Fraser, you know, and a comeback narrative like this. And there are certainly those people who are going to film festivals, big ones, regional ones, whatever, but it's a tiny selection of people. I think that there is, the movie is much, much more an unknown, you know, and, and I think doing this kind of, I mean, you know, this is the kind of thing where like, if this movie were out 70 years ago, let's say 80 years ago, the marketing for it would be horrifying. It would, you know, it would be yes. like, you know, like you have to has to be seen to be believed, kind of like horrible like, stuff like, like Bradley that. Cooper in Nightmare Alley kind of advertising. <laughs> exactly, the, I was the exactly thinking show. a sort of that that world exactly, and um, obviously that is not what anyone at A twenty four is doing. That's not what the filmmakers are doing. I'm not accusing it of that, but like in a modern context, there still is that kind of like, are we going to watch a story or are we going to watch Brendan Fraser doing this thing? And if the movie itself answered the former question better, I would it would be okay. But I think, unfortunately, for me anyway, it ends up just being like, look at Brendan Fraser doing this thing. And that's not a sensitive approach to the material, I don't think. Well, to go to another Oscar contender that's very visible, at least in Los Angeles at fancy screenings, 
Guillermo del Toro has been hitting the town to present Pinocchio, um, which released uh, FYC ads recently from Netflix, uh, gunning it for best picture, not just best animated feature. Um, David, you mentioned briefly last week, I think you saw it at Savannah. Um, it really does seem to be a strong contender. And I think we all know Guillermo del Toro as a salesman for his own movies is kind of unbeatable. Everyone loves to talk to him and he seems to be genuinely having a great time, which is gets harder and harder to prove as the season goes on. Um, do you feel like... Uh, Guillermo and Pinocchio came out of this weekend really strong. Yeah, that's hard to hard to deny. And uh, I actually saw it at, back in LA the day I got back at the Animation is Film Festival at the Samuel Goldwyn Theater, which is the Academy's theater. It was a full house, and the screening was really interesting because. You know, usually when you go to a festival screening, the filmmaker introduces the movie, you watch it, and there's a Q&A afterward. But there was a whole pre-movie reel of, you know, basically a making of reel where you, before you watch the movie, you listen to Guillermo del Toro, who is an unbelievable craftsman and an unbelievable um, articulator of cinematic craft, um, just going through how he made the movie. And you're seeing him build these incredible set pieces really from scratch. And so then you watch the movie and there's a a kind of worn handmade quality to the movie very intentionally, again, as he tells you in this making of video, uh, and it just completely reels you in and enhances, enhancing experience for me, seeing how he'd done it and then actually seeing it come to life, um, which also feels true to the spirit of Pinocchio itself. And the crowd ate it up. I loved this movie. I think it's absolutely deserves to be in the best picture conversation. Ooh, as I don't think about. I realized how hardcore you were in for I, I'm all about it. Um, and I, I think, you know, we've talked about it with documentaries a lot. Just the fact that it, when, in that case, it has been literally impossible for a documentary to crack the best picture top 10. But um, the, the way this movie so carefully treads the line of not being a children's movie, but still being full of, you know, the kind of enchantment and wonder that can appeal to kids and adults um, is really impressive and it has enormous amounts of heart and enormous amounts of, of craft behind it. And um, I was totally won over by it. So that's where I'm at. I haven't seen it yet, but Guillermo carrying around that little Pinocchio. Oscar. Oh. All the Oscars. Yeah. It, it just every carpet that he's carrying that little guy around, I'm like, you've won me over. I, I just think it's so adorable. <laughs> and he is such a, he's such a filmmaker that's like not jaded and so full of like, wonder and excitement yeah. himself that it just feels like this perfect match so i and netflix doesn't have a strong front runner for best picture so it seems like a really smart move for them to put their support behind it i, I was reading something that i think you know get del toro carrying around the, the doll and everything that like i think he is gonna bring it to life at the golden globes oh, thank on goodness. stage <laughs> which would be really exciting yeah um, that's the kind of magic you can't get outside of live television I was just I, so it's Toy Story three that was the last animated feature to get nominated for Best Picture in this very odd window I think where the Best Picture field gets ex expanded partly because of Wall-E and everyone's like oh yes Pixar now gets in and then after a while everyone's like mm, maybe not um, so it's definitely not impossible I mean Netflix has invested in the animated race in the past and hasn't won um, which is really interesting because they've had strong contenders before um, but you're right Rebecca that because they don't have like a real obvious Best Picture contender like why not bet on Guillermo del Toro. This is maybe a trite kind of question slash joke, but like, how are we not counting Avatar two as animated? <laughs> like, I actually That's don't a good question. understand that question. <laughs> right I there with you, like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think there are human beings in the movie. No, there are. 
Our, our, Mich- Michelle Yeoh our... plays a Well, a actually, person. I don't think she's in the first one. She's yeah, in she's the not sequel. in this one. Oh, really? But I assume there are other... There's no other people? The trailers seem to show them fighting like robots, and I and I feel like Stephen Lang's villain character gets turned into an avatar. So I think Stephen a, Lang is playing an, a Navi. So they're fighting like a bad Navi? Like, I, I don't know. I, I But I just, like, it, it just feels odd to me that, like, it's all computer imagery, and yet it doesn't count. Um, yeah, I don't know. Whatever. I think we'll, we, we're going to do a little research and get the answer to this. This is a really good question. Yeah, and Avatar 2, really one of our last remaining huge question marks. Like, at least Babylon, we don't know a lot about, but we we think it, there's people in it at the very least. <laughs> we will have answers on Babylon next week. It's screening on Monday. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it was coming so soon. Well, for you LA people, it's screening on Wednesday for me. Mm, well, they, they live in Babylon. They, <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah it's about you guys. It's, about it's a 48-hour time difference. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, before we talk about Wakanda Forever, the big new release of the week, obviously, we did want to get into Weird, the Al Yankovic story, um, which is now out on the Roku channel. I learned that anyone can access the Roku channel, even if you don't have a Roku. At, I think it's like therokuchannel.com. Anyway, you can watch it. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe really is doing a lot in there, and there's some uh, enjoyable energy in there. But there's also a song that plays over the credits, sung by Weird Al, um, and it's very silly, that says that it is eligible for the Best Original Song Oscar. But it's not. David, you did some shoe leather reporting to get to the bottom of this for us. It's not. (laughs) We can confirm. Yeah, following our discussion last week around the Golden Globes comedy categories, you know, this movie popped as a really interesting potential spoiler in Daniel Radcliffe uh, as a Best Actor candidate. But sadly, it is going the TV movie route um, where... Daniel Radcliffe will have to compete against the likes of Colin Firth for the staircase and (laughs) (laughs) Sebastian Stam for Pam and Tommy. So, yes, he is not in the the film race. Um, What a misopportunity. I mean, I don't, the distribution of this movie is so odd. Uh, You know, the Roku channel has a lot of like shows that started as quibbies. So I don't know what the options would have been, but it does feel like if the Golden Globes are kind of come back, this is such a movie that belongs in that. Crowd. I mean, if you put it in a theater for a week, it counts, right? Like, mm-hmm. they yeah. could have just done that. But and they, they qualified to let you Leo Grand in the end, so it's not nothing's impossible. My hunch would be that this Nation channel was like, look, we could try to get Oscar nominations, but, like, we're more likely to get Emmy wins, and that's a better way to put our, our yes. network on the map, right? Yeah, yeah. And also, my problem with it is... At this point, given what we were just saying about specialty releases and the way people are seeing movies, a movie that has a pretty robust festival run feels pretty theatrical to me. And Mm -hmm. I I do wonder how that line is going to continue to blur in the next few years, because a lot of people did see this in the theater, and it premiered in Toronto to a very ecstatic audience. Yeah. Um, And that's, for a lot of people, the barometer, because they're going to watch it at home anyway. So... Um, it'll be interesting to see how this develops over the next few years with movies like this that know they're going the TV movie route, bypassing Oscar consideration, but are ginning up all their interest and anticipation by hitting film festivals with Oscar contenders. And then landing in the most no man's land of all Emmy categories, the TV movie, which David, you've written also about that. too, just how you know wild and hard it is to stand out when you're lumped in with limited series, which yeah. is what Where, like, happened to Weird. Dolly Parton will beat <laughs> a good HBO movie. <laughs> Look, no shade to Dolly Parton. I've defended Christmas on the Square on the show before. We do it again. <laughs> Don't tempt me. 
Okay, before my interview, let's wrap talking about the big, undeniably in-theaters movie of the week, Wakanda Forever. We've been keeping a close eye on it here at the end of the season for reasons we've talked about plenty of times. Black Panther was an Oscar nominee and a cultural phenomenon. The word on Wakanda Forever seems a little different. Um, And it is a Marvel movie, which doesn't have the greatest of Oscar track records. Um, Richard, you reviewed the movie for us. Uh, How do you feel about it as a movie and then maybe as as an Oscar contender? I feel deep sympathy for the movie um, in that they were a horrible thing happened and that they lost Chadwick Boseman, who was the centerpiece of this franchise and, an, you know, incredible performer to boot. And that complicates matters. In, you know, these movies take years and years to plan. Um, and when something like that happens, you're given less time to scramble and try to figure out a solution for it. Disney was not going to give them another four years, you know, to develop it because that would screw up everything in the sort of broader universe and and so Ryan Coogler had to kind of figure something out faster than is ideal and I think that in some ways he did you know um he moves Letitia Wright to the center of the film she's a great actor he gives Angela Bassett more to do Danae Guerrero more to do um that's all exciting um but on the other side of that what was so fun about Letitia Wright's performance in the first film was how spunky and she was the, the, the genius kid sister and she was kind of penny to, I guess, Inspector Gadget or whatever. Like, <laughs> she was fun. And in this, she can't be fun because she's given a storyline that was originally meant for T'Challa, um, Shuri's brother. And so it has to be dark and it has to be serious. And so you lose that energy and then you, everyone else is kind of in mourning. And so that, and then they're introducing a whole new kind of, world of something that I guess I don't want to spoil, I don't know, that is interesting, but it feels like, ugh, like, save that for the next movie, because we have to deal with all the stuff that happened, you know, because of real world stuff. And it's just so much to juggle. And I think that Ryan Coogler is such a really great director, and and that, that he's able to do it as best as anyone could have. But it's still a strain to watch, I found. And it's, you know, two hours and 40 minutes, and it just feels like we're focused on one character for the first act, then we shift all of a sudden to something else, and then they we shift away from her, and then we, sh- you know, it, it feels a little scattered um, in, a, in the way that just represents to me a company doing brand maintenance over storytelling. Yeah, I think what you're saying, Richard, is right, is what was the purpose of this film? And it, and it, it, it is very to me, I you know, it feels like a film to say goodbye to Chadwick Boseman. And you can tell a lot of the actors are trying to do that. But then like sandwiched in the middle is this is a Marvel sequel and we have to up the action and up the world and up, you know, and make everything bigger. And, and as someone who doesn't watch a lot of Marvel films, that part of it was exhausting to me. Um, but I loved the beginning and I loved the end. And I just I can't imagine any filmmaker who could thread that needle of 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 letting audiences say goodbye to, to this person and this character but also not ever making it feel manipulative to them so I, I agree he did the best he could but it but it's it's definitely very very different than the first film one yeah I mean I think that one thing I wrote in my very <laughs> surface level review because like I, I you're not supposed to spoil anything but like is that Coogler as he showed in Creed and certainly showed in the first Black Panther is so good at taking genre and finding the sort of human dimensions beneath that genre or like just just under the surface and like that that is there in Black Panther especially as you said Rebecca in the kind of opening and closing moments of the film 
it's everything in the middle that becomes a problem. They're not only introducing a new world in terms of a villain-ish character, although that is morally complicated as Killmonger was in the first one, which I appreciate that the, the politics of this sequel are as you know intricate and troubled and, and kind of ambivalent in a way as the first one. But there's also a new sort of hero character who is meant to do big things, I believe, on Disney Plus at some point. Of course, um, of course. And of course, yeah. like you're kind of like, and she's a good actor, and you the character is fun, I suppose. Um, I mean, it brings us to Cambridge, Massachusetts, near where I grew up. That's fun. But um, <laughs> there's a big action sequence on the Charles River. Basically, it's really cool. But um, but like you're like just save that for something else figure it out because the, the movie gets sort of distracted by it and she's given short shrift because of it you know and that's where you just really feel the heavy hand of the corporate offices you know and um that's unfortunate because what elsewhere in the film it's it's respectful and it's solemn and 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 in a, in a way that i find you know it's it's powerful and and i just wish that it didn't have to sort of then put that on pause for the better part of two hours uh, before getting back the to it. hijinks in yeah. the middle. Yeah. yeah. So I think Wakanda Forever is part of a larger conversation we've been having all year about this year's Oscars and how blockbustery they're going to want to be um, because movie theaters have been back. Movies have actually made some money. Top Gun Maverick is all obviously looming really large there. And it felt for a while like Wakanda could really like pick up that baton and be this phenomenon on the same level as the first one. And it very well, it probably will make a ton of money still. Um, but I think it being kind of more like an overstuffed Marvel sequel than a real uh, standalone success kind of complicates that. Does it? How does it make you guys feel about either its place in the Best Picture lineup or just, you know, how big the Best Picture lineup will be overall? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the closing minutes of the film are powerful enough with a Rihanna song that probably will get nominated, even though annoying gays on Twitter were like, it's not a bop, it's a sad song. And I was like, yeah, because it's about a sad thing. Um, I don't think they vote in the music branch, though. <laughs> well, well, we don't know that, Katie. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that there, I, I saw it with a colleague who had not seen any of the shows and a character from the shows pops up and he was like, I didn't understand that at all. And I think an Academy voter might be like, who is that person supposed to be? You know, like, that's more, a, this is more so than like at the end of Eternals when Harry Styles shows up on a spaceship and you're like, who? What? No, I mean, like, OK, spoiler alert for anyone listening. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, this character from sort of in like, I guess she was at the end credits thing in one movie and then she pops up on in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Wow. Yeah, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Like she's in there and it's like you'd really kind of have to have watched Falcon and the Winter Soldier to get what she's doing. And. I think there's enough alienating in the movie because it's not at all as standalone as Black Panther was that maybe it that really dings its Oscar chances. But those closing minutes are powerful enough that maybe everyone just says, you know, let's give it that honor again. Um, I, I don't think it's out of the race having seen it, but I think it has a, a steeper hill to climb than um, it once seemed like it did. Yeah, and I think it's going to do really, really well at the box office, which I do think will help its chances to stay in this conversation. Um, and and I, I think people should definitely go see this in theater. It's it's a it's a powerful film to watch um, with an audience. And so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't count it out either, but I, I agree it it's far less likely than it was last time. And last time we were all talking about how unlikely it was for a Marvel film to get best picture. So Yeah. I did have one friend text me that Ruth Carter is going to win another costume design Oscar, which yes. seems well within oh, yes. the realm of possibility. Yes, yes. Yeah. The crafts, the music, all of that is so strong again. I mean, there's no denying any of the below the line for sure. So it sounds like this year's Oscars will be kind of big. Like even if Best Picture winds up, you know, having more movies the size of Tar than um, 
been kind of forever. Like the the blockbusters between this and Top Gun Maverick, and we're guessing Avatar will be pretty well represented. What what would be nice is if we don't have a situation where a movie like Dune wins ten Oscars. <laughs> yeah, like a little bit more variety in the crafts categories among bigger movies like Top Gun, Avatar, Black Panther. Like that alone, I think makes the Oscars more dynamic. So that that's a good thing. That's a good point. Yeah, when you're going through the night and you see people from the same movie coming up over and over again, but then they don't really have a chance of winning Best Picture. That's a strange feeling. Yeah, I mean, my feeling was while they handled it absolutely horribly, it was hard to deny that that would have gotten a little tiresome if all of those categories were presented independently. So, yeah, I'm, I'm all for the variety. There is one funny overlap with Avatar, though, in that both are about blue people in the ocean. <laughs> And that just feels like you never could have planned that, like, these two enormous movies that both feature blue people in the ocean were be coming out within a month of each other. But, like, there it is. <laughs> um, but, you know, maybe that'll that, – there you go. Jimmy, I've given you your first joke. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have people painted as Navi on stage at the Oscars again, aren't we? So now let's hear the conversation I had with Sam Wasson, who is the co-author of the book Hollywood and Oral History. He co-wrote it with uh, who was both of our college film professor, the head of the Wesleyan University Film Studies Department, Janine Basinger, who truly has forgotten more about Hollywood than I will ever know. Um, And it it takes recordings from interviews and uh, kind of class sessions at AFI and turns them into an oral history, stretching way back to like the very beginning of Hollywood, where people were, you know, not even in Hollywood yet, Um, you know, had worked as mail carriers before becoming stuntmen and then kind of takes you all the way up to the present day. It's a really interesting look at how Hollywood has grown, about Hollywood talks about itself, about what people choose to remember, um, and, you know, kind of takes from the horse's mouth a lot of stories about people like Louis B. Mayer, who have kind of grown more into legend than human beings. Um, I thought it was a fun conversation with Sam, so let's hear that interview. So I'm happy to be joined here by Sam Wasson, the co-author of the new book, Hollywood and Oral History, an intimidating title if I ever heard one. Uh, Hello, Sam. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Katie. Thank you. And we should say from the start that we have a shared past to some degree, that we both uh, graduated from Wesleyan University in the film studies program. You were a bit ahead of me. But you wrote this book with our shared old professor, Janine Basinger, the smartest person I've ever met to talk about That's movies. Right. Um, yep. You really are. That makes you the best student, right? Like you win the prize at long last. I think at this point, I would have to say, you know, at least this year, I'm the best student. Someone else will happen next year. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm certainly the most historically focused student, it seems to be. That's so true. The, the one naturally inclined to call up Janine and say, Janine, look what we got. We got all of these 3,000 interviews from the history of Hollywood going all the way back to Lillian Gish. You know, she was perfectly, she's perfectly cast, as you know. I mean, there's yeah. no one on the planet or off the planet who knows more about Hollywood than Janine. There, there, there really, there really isn't. Yep. So it was, I was a no brain. She also, you know, the greatest teacher on top of being the greatest authority and one of my best friends. So it was a no brainer. Yeah. I mean, the the process of making the book is sort of written into the way that you put it together. You've got these archives from AFI, mountains. I don't even know what the physical status of these were, but I'm just imagining piles of something that you're putting together into a book. I mean, where you, do you start by calling Janine and saying, help me? Where do you even figure out how to start putting this into a book? Well, you, it started because I was researching the Chinatown book. Mm-hmm. And 
found in, you know, I wanted to look into Anthea Silbert, obviously, is one of the who was the costume designer of Chinatown. There was she didn't leave a lot of interviews, but it, she did one at AFI, which was extraordinary. And because she these were seminars where you're speaking to the students, you are really teaching. And I reading this interview, I just got lost, not in just her testimony around Chinatown, but about what it meant to be a costume designer in the 70s, mm-hmm. really after you lose um, Western costume and making costumes becomes. So I, I, it, was a, it was a time travel to the past. And then I realized, wait a second, this is just one of 3,000 of these. Mm-hmm. Which were all just in audio form at that point, right? There, there's some in audio, some in visual, some only in transcript form. They were all in all sorts of uh, condition because a lot of people don't know about them. Yeah. So I had the good fortune of saying, all my friends are here. You know, the 3,000 people who were and are the leaders of the greatest, you know, you know the greatest film business in, in the history of the planet. So... I called up um, friends at AFI and called up Janine, and I said, we can now tell the story of Hollywood firsthand. Yeah. You know, this is not this is not my interpretation. This, this is not um, nostalgia. We're not looking back on it. These are the people who were there and who made it. And we don't just take anyone's word for it. We have a lot of corroborating evidence. And what we wanted to do was make it like a real conversation. So we wanted it to be like Lillian Gish is in the room with Jordan Peele. Yep. And and the way that we achieve that is by having people finish each other's thoughts. Because they, they, they do. It is one long conversation, Hollywood. We're still dealing with the same issues of changes in technology and how to how to make a living and how to live a life out here. None of it changes. Um, it just wears a different hat. So yep. that's a long answer to your simple question. Yeah. I think it's Louis B. Mayer, who is the studio head you spend the most time on, where everyone has a story and the stories contradict each other. There are people who talk about how he was wonderful and people who talk about how he was a monster. And like that happens for a couple of different people. And that was where I I thought, because I think the historical debate about these really powerful studio heads and how they treated people continues to this day. And I wonder how you guys decided the lens that you wanted to put on that and what you landed on. Well, I don't think Louis B. Mayer... I don't think anyone thought he was a monster. I, 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 I think they thought he was, you know, at worst, very tough, emotionally extravagant, sometimes manipulated, could explode into uh, outrage. But, you know, he was also a visionary, giant respecter of talent. And we've got incredible testimony uh, uh, from Catherine Hepburn, actually, about bending over backwards to try to take care of Judy Garland. You know, mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. this idea that studio heads were bad to the talent is so wrong. And this book proves that over and over and over again. It doesn't make sense, actually, historically, why they would be. Think about it. You run a studio and your people are artists under contract. How are you going to get them to do their best? How are you going to get Judy Garland to sing her best by making her miserable? Yeah. No way. You want you need these people for the bottom line to be happy as to the best of your ability. 
Now, it doesn't mean they're always happy, and it doesn't mean that there aren't conflicts between the power and the subordinates, but Louis B. did everything. And Jack Warner would say, you know, if if Judy were under contract to Warner Brothers, I never would have been as patient as you have, you know, mm-hmm. as, as, as you were. So... Um, LB lost a lot of money on Judy waiting for her to get, to show up. And I mean, th- it's a long way of saying, yes, these are, you know, all giants are complicated, but Louis B. Mayer was, you know, and we hope that complication is in there, but I would never say, you know, monster, you know, that's, that's another, that's getting into evil, which, yeah. you, you know, yeah. I mean, from that studio period, you also have a lot of, you know, craftspeople working behind the scenes who are saying the way that you learn to make movies is to make 50 of them a year. You know, the famous studio system output. And you watch the studio system kind of fall apart in the 50s and 60s. I mean, was that just a recurring theme that anyone who worked in a studio kind of looked back at that incredible pace really fondly about how much it taught them? Yes, yes. And uh, that was such an important part of why we wanted to do this book and say the studio system was the greatest era in Hollywood. And it's not, we're not romanticizing the past. You know, we're not creating a fiction. If you don't want to believe that, don't shoot the messenger. We've got 500 pages of (laughs) one person (laughs) after the next saying, you know, I worked my ass off. I got to do what I love with people I respect and live, as we know, a very comfortable life. Yeah. And and by the way, create work that endures. Mm-hmm. So was it paradise? No. Was it a paradise? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like when you were spending so much time in all of these, you know, people really holding court and telling stories about themselves, did it give you a new insight into how Hollywood tells stories about itself and, and what people want to highlight when they're, you know, it's not nostalgic, but they are looking back from, you know, a decade or two decades earlier about what they've done. What did you learn about how Hollywood likes to talk about itself? Well, I think Hollywood likes to talk about itself the way we all like to talk about what we're, our lives. I mean, it's no different than any other culture is different. We're all, we're all people. I mean, it's like saying, how does Wall Street like to talk about itself? How does uh, the fashion industry like to talk about itself? You know, if you're good and proud, you speak about something that you love with pride. If you're not proud of it, you speak about it with disdain. I, I think that would be a generalization to say Hollywood likes to talk about itself in a way that anyone else likes to talk about itself. Don't you think each industry kind of has different myths about itself in different ways that it props up kind of its origin story and how they, like what they're proud of and what they're not? I think the Wall Street would have different versions of that than what Hollywood was. But, you're, you know, you're looking for patterns across the decades of what people talk about. And I, I wonder what stood out for you and what recurs and what you know, themes recur. Oh, well, you know, I, I think Irving Thalberg, you know, um, oh yeah, that section's fascinating. Yeah, he's fascinating. Yeah, I think Irving Thalberg is as close as anyone would come to myth, and I think that cuts both ways. I mean, I think Irving Thalberg, who was, of course, you know, a, a I don't want to let's see, a, a very uh, a legendary producer working with L. B. Mayer in the twenties uh, and thirties, who died very young and was the subject of of uh, Fitzgerald's book, The Last Tycoon. Uh, inspiration, I should say. It's a work of fiction. Um, but Thalberg has over time taken on this this reputation, uh, this this 
he represents dignity in Hollywood, mm-hmm. Irving Thalberg. Um, and and that has a mythic quality because if you go back and look at his work, and Janine and I would talk about this, you know, where did that come from? Why was there so much respect for Thalberg? What did he do? Did he really earn all of that respect? Or is it just myth that has been carried down over the years. And this is part of our job as historians, is not to take the story that we understand it for granted, but to really look at it and say, well, how was it? Was it, How was it really? And Thalberg turns out to be a real friend of the writers mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning of Sound and established a lot and, and developed a lot of projects that were based on classic works of literature. So people took him to be an intellectual of Hollywood, which he really only somewhat was. And his emphasis was on being on literature, not necessarily on the best possible movies. I mean, a lot of those movies don't survive. So Thalberg is really a mythic character. And um, maybe that that answers your question. Yeah. And like someone who people kind of return to, like, even if you're making movies in 2022, you think about Irving Thalberg, like, it looms really large. He stands out as, you know, like, the producer. So we really wanted to interrogate why to separate the man from the myth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen the movie Babylon, and I imagine you haven't either. But as far as I understand it, he's the only real person, like, named who's a character in that movie, which is set in 1920s Hollywood, which is, I'm very intrigued. Let's see. Let's see how they do it. Um, you know, I, I'm always wary of any Hollywood movie that, any work that paints Hollywood as Sodom and Gomorrah, um, which it wasn't, as you'll see over <laughs> 700 <laughs> pages of this book. But um, you know, America always wants to think. Going back to Fatty Arbuckle, who was uh, accused of rape and murder and who was acquitted, um, America always thinks that. There's bad stuff going on over there, really bad stuff going on over there in Hollywood. And of course, there's bad stuff going on everywhere where there's money and power and, you know, there's bad stuff going on everywhere. But because people are so fascinated, titillated, jealous of, um, angered by um, Hollywood, it's all amplified. So, Mm -hmm. So Hollywood becomes not just a way of life like any other, to quote the title of Darcy O'Brien's book about Hollywood, but it becomes the worst of everything, the best of everything. Um, When, you know, in fact, we, you know, we go to bed early because we got to wake up for when the sun comes up, probably if we're shooting on location, uh, or even if we're shooting, you know, in interiors, we've got to wake up early and set up the shot. Or if you're in the shot, you've got to do hours and hours of make, which means you're probably going to bed early. And you're probably going to bed early because you're tired. No, Hollywood is famously not a late town. So there were also wild parties. I'm not going to say <laughs> there weren't wild parties. Of course there were wild parties. <laughs> we are people from the theater and show people, you know? we they There were theme parties in Hollywood all the, in the early days of Hollywood. You know, they would... Carol Lombard gave fantastic theme parties, and uh, you'd see them all... I mean, Hearst, Hearst Castle was a mm-hmm. great 
place. He Hearst had a, a um, New Year's Eve party that was outrageous. It went to all hours of the night. Of course, they didn't go to work the next day. <laughs> They're up in San Simeon. It's a different deal. But yeah. to characterize Hollywood as this place of party town is not is just not true. I mean, it, it's not you know. So in, in, we're talking about Babylon. Now, maybe Babylon is a totally sober and honest look at Hollywood, and they just cut a trailer that's going to appeal to this false idea of people, peoples, which is that Hollywood is party, party fucktown, you know, sex and drugs and <laughs> blood on the walls. And, but really, they're misrepresenting the movie, which is deeper than that. I don't know. But this m- misconception about Hollywood is that still that powerful that, you know, we're talking about it. We're talking about it even today. Um, So I tend to assume that between you and Janine, you know everything. But did you learn anything putting this book together that you didn't know before? Oh, yeah. I learned that when power is decentralized, which it has become in Hollywood, it stops to function. It stops Mm -hmm. functioning. Mm Mm-hmm that there really does need to be, when you're dealing with giant groups of people, which is what a movie is, there needs to be a hierarchy of power. And if the director is equal to the star, is equal to the producer, is equal to the writer, is equal to the release date, is equal to the marketing, to watch that disintegrate, to watch power decentralized from the studio system that really taught me that really taught me that about about organization mm-hmm. um and and about community you know because they are the same thing a community has to be organized so that's that's one uh, that's w- one of so many things um is there anything in hollywood working the way that in that organization that makes sense to you no <laughs> Are we doomed? No. Is the industry doomed unless it gets well, back to it? The industry is doomed. The industry is doomed as long as it makes movies that basically no one cares about. You know, there's Top Gun that makes a huge amount of money. There's James Bond that makes a huge amount of money. And then what? You know, the the gap between the box office giants and the middle ground is so wide that the 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 goal is nearly impossible to hit and when it's so hard when you're ha- trying to please everyone you know you end up making very safe work mm-hmm. very very generic work which might get people to the theater cuz they're excited about the brand and it might even give them a good time uh if they are nostalgic about maverick you know and are james bond fans but the they don't stick with you. They, they don't, you know, they don't stick with you. The people will not be watching those movies in, you know, years from now. Yeah. They won't be doing it. So, yes, I am concerned. I mean, I like to see an expensive, big production. I'm not worried about inde- independent movies will always live. And, and it's, it's easier and easier to have the means to make an independent film, 
you know, the technology is less expensive. It's more ubiquitous. We're streaming like crazy. You know, these are these are nice things. But in in terms of the highest quality craftspeople and stars with the greatest scripts, you know, these things are so expensive that they can only be bankrolled by a Hollywood. But Hollywood yeah. doesn't do that anymore. So that. That is a sadness. That That is a big sadness. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to that section about the studio heads, there was this, you know, a part toward the end of it, I think, like, these are the guys who made calls based on gut instinct. They weren't market testing. They weren't trying to see what would please everyone. They went with knowing story. And you hear that so much now with, like, people talking about Netflix and having it be data-driven. Like, it's the exact same right. thing. What does an algorithm know? Yeah. It knows that you liked something, so it's in the same genre, So, or other people liked it based upon that you like. An algorithm doesn't know anything, and it's only aggregating what already what already exists, you know? I mean, these guys were, were creating new worlds. Yeah. They were doing what artists do, which is see the future. That's where the gut instinct is. You know, Frank Capra always says, the audience doesn't know what they're going to like. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's like the, what is it when you go to sushi? Is it omakase? What, what what is it called when you when you say chef's choice? Oh, sure, chef's I don't know. choice. Yeah, yeah. No, this is a very fashionable thing in L.A. is to go pay you know a lot of money to not choose what you're going to eat. Sounds great, but honestly. <laughs> it's great. It is great. It is great because what you're saying is I'm going to turn it over to the expert. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say. You have spent your whole life studying how to be a sushi chef. I'm not going to sit there and order a spicy tuna roll. You know, I don't know what's good. You know what's good. That's what Hollywood used to be. That that's the opposite of the of the algorithm. Yeah. Although you talk about the algorithm not knowing anything, there is kind of this cascade near the end of the book of a bunch of people all quoting William Goldman, basically saying nobody knows anything. So it's these yes. people have taste, but they're also like, ah, you know, who knows well, what's going to hit? Nobody knows anything. I'm a, it's an important distinction to make. Nobody knows anything. It is, it is true. But based on nobody knows anything, the way to succeed is to take a risk, mm-hmm. not by making something that has been made before. Yep. Um, you could make a re you could rehash something and it could be better than the original, you know, mm-hmm. and that's happened before. Um, but you, you cannot, this is not a formula. This yeah. is not a formula. And anyone who tells you that they know how to make a hit is lying or delusional. Yeah. And I think that really is the impact of reading this huge book is you just get so many stories, so many idiosyncratic personalities, so many just like examples of what worked and what didn't, that it's about the people doing it. And there's no there's no predicting it. That And, and it makes you value it more, I think, that it's not a machine. It's a bunch of people. It is not a machine. And we thought, you know, we thought people like to talk about Hollywood as the dream factory. And and Janine and I took pains to, to while people reference it in the book, we, we don't like to call it a factory because at a factory they're making the same you think of an assembly line yeah and while hollywood had the efficiency of an assembly line they were making they were making art yeah so it it really is a studio you know that's why it was so much better then i mean no they didn't know you you never can know if your movie is going to work or not the only thing you do know the only thing you do know is is talent Mm-hmm. You know what talent is. You go with talent. If you're any good, if you're any good, 
You go to talent and you bet on talent. That's all you can do. That does it for today's show. You can find us at VanityFair.com, as always. You can find us on Twitter at HWD. And on our own, I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And David. David Canfield, 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best promo for Little Gold Men Live goes to Katie Rich. We're going to have people painted as Navi on stage. <laughs>